Welcome to the Highland Good Food Podcast. I'm Emma Whittam and today we're going to be chatting about food and climate. As the anticipation and excitement builds in the lead up to Cloak 26 in Glasgow this November, we all know this is our best chance to get the world on track to tackle climate change. This last few weeks has felt like the full fury of the climate crisis has appeared almost everywhere at once. From the deadly heatwaves in Canada to the devastating deluges hit in northern Europe and from raging forest fires in Siberia to record-breaking rainfall in China. It has been plain to see that nobody and nowhere is immune to the changing climate. This really feels like a significant point in history with our world leaders being faced with the monumental task of bridging that gap between the country's current commitments and the significant transformation needed to tackle the climate and nature emergencies. We all have high expectations for COP26. And earlier this month, Mike Berners-Lee, the carbon footprint guru, who's author of How Bad Are Bananas and There Is No Planet B, joined me for a chat. And here are some of his hopes for the COP26. Going into the COP, you know, we need to see a level of seriousness that I don't think our government is yet expecting to have to deliver and a level of coherence that again I I haven't yet seen evidence that we're going to get but for the COP to be successful we're going to need to achieve a level of global cooperation that the world has probably never seen on anything before and one of the ingredients of making that work is that we're going to need to show that we respect all people in all parts of the world in a way that the global community has never had to do before. So part of this is about making it clear that it's going to work for the developing world as well as the rich parts of the world. And I think that's, if I were to put my finger on the top few things, you know, that would be one of them. At Paris, we promised some hundreds of billions of pounds of support for developing countries. We haven't yet delivered it. The developing nations didn't pull out of Paris at the time, but if we want to keep them on board and get them more strongly on board, then we need to honour that commitment. And the second thing is that if you look at you know, the simplest way of getting on top of global emissions, it would be through a carbon pricing mechanism. It doesn't necessarily need to be one global price at the start point, but somehow we need to be moving towards carbon becoming expensive and the taking of fossil fuel out of the ground becoming expensive. And I think, you know, whatever the ins and outs of the specific arrangements, that is the direction that the COP has got to be moving in. Climate change really is the biggest global challenge we have ever faced, with global cooperation being key. So I thought you might like to hear what's happening in other parts of the world. So first up, we're going to hear from Eve Gleason from Food Tank, a US-based research and advocacy nonprofit working to build a more sustainable food system. And Eve is going to share some insights into what's happening in the United States. I'm so hopeful about the food system in the US and around the globe. The organization I work for, Food Tank, was founded with the mission of highlighting stories of hope and success in the food system. Ultimately, we hope to shine a spotlight on the movements and organizations that are creating more environmentally, economically, and socially just food and agriculture systems. The urgency of meeting the sustainable development goals and solving the climate crisis through agreements like the Paris Agreement is crucial, especially as we're still facing the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. Food Tank works with numerous partners and collaborators throughout the United States 
to highlight food systems' best practices, and we're so grateful to share some of their work as they strive towards enacting more sustainable agriculture practices, preventing food loss and food waste, and ensuring abundant health, equality, and justice within the food system. Let me give you a few examples. In sustainable agriculture, there are many organizations working to make farming more sustainable as well as more productive, accessible, and affordable. The Riddell Institute is an independent research institute for organic farming with many projects looking at soil health and land health. And one of their projects, the 30-year-long Farming Systems Trial, is the longest-running side-by-side comparison of organic and chemical agriculture And they found that organic systems are consistently more resilient and productive than chemical systems. Some other efforts to address sustainability in agriculture in the United States include the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network, which aims to support communities of color disproportionately impacted by environmental degradation. These projects are essential for addressing sustainable development goals related to healthy and resilient environments that protect both people and planet. There are also several really interesting youth-focused movements working to address various issues in the food system. Because farmers are aging, the National Young Farmers Coalition is tackling issues faced by young farmers, like access to land, student loan debt, availability of skilled labor, and access to health insurance. The coalition pushes for policy change and trains young farmers in land access, land stewardship, and business operations practices. I'm also in awe of the work of Soulfire Farm. The farm, which is led by Leah Pennyman, is an organic farm, but also a wider social initiative dedicated to addressing systemic injustice against people of color in the food system. At Soulfire Farm, Leah and her colleagues are fighting for a food system that reflects racial justice with improved opportunities and conditions for farmers and food workers of color and one that better nourishes people of color who often live in food deserts or face financial barriers to accessing abundant, safe, and nutritious food. Karen Washington, another legendary farmer based in the Bronx of New York, is also working towards Black food justice through Rise and Root Farm and Black urban growers. Through her work, Karen uplifts Black urban farmers and promotes urban farming as a crucial resource for bringing fresh vegetables to underserved communities. Tony Hillary is another exceptional black farmer whose Harlem-based organization, Harlem Grown, works towards better food education and access to healthy food for our nation's underprivileged youth. The U.S. is also tackling food waste, which is such an important element of meeting SDGs on zero hunger, responsible production and consumption, and also climate action. The Food Recovery Network is one great example. As a network of university programs, The FRN is a student-led movement working to recover food that might be wasted on university campuses and in dining halls. They coordinate the collection of this food, and they direct it towards communities in need. There's also a national organization, ReFed, which collects data on food waste, points out issues in supply chains, and helps find funding for food waste reduction projects. Of course, food systems also encompass those working in food service. Restaurant Opportunity Centers United led by Saru Jayaraman, aims to improve wages and working conditions for restaurant workers. Rock United was founded with a mission to support immigrant restaurant workers, and it's evolved to address the challenges regularly faced by food and hospitality workers. During COVID, Rock United's One Fair Wage Initiative created an emergency relief fund to provide wage assistance to food workers who were experiencing mass unemployments during lockdowns, 
including undocumented workers who make up a substantial portion of the food service workforce. Addressing the rights of food system workers is a key part of tackling the unjust practices in our food system that pose many challenges to achieving the sustainable development goals. The indigenous food sovereignty movement is more specific to the U.S., but it really represents the importance of food sovereignty and local food systems among indigenous and community-based movements worldwide. Most indigenous communities in the U.S. face food insecurity, a lack of food sovereignty, and diet-related health problems. This movement toward restoring indigenous food cultures and ensuring access to healthy, culturally appropriate, and sustainable food is led by both national and tribal initiatives. One national initiative, the First Nations Development Institute, is addressing a range of issues across indigenous communities, with strong food and farming-related initiatives that provide different forms of support, training materials, and dedicated projects for tribal communities rebuilding their food systems. These efforts are addressing the SDGs related to poverty, hunger, inequality, community resilience, and well-being. There are countless individuals and organizations that inspire all of us at Food Tank every day. We really hope we can create more awareness about their work so that they can get the investment, the funding, and the resources they need to solve our most pressing environmental and social problems. But we don't have a minute to waste. The time to act is now. And now we hear from Chimuku, from the Michikenda community in Kenya, and hear all about their amazing work. We are working with an indigenous community in coastal Kenya. The name of the community is Michikenda Community to conserve and preserve indigenous food within the Kaya landscape. Our work entails bringing the community together to conserve the landscape through the concept of biocultural heritage. The landscape has a, a lot of resources and is very rich in agrobiodiversity with over 59 different indigenous vegetables, about four to five maize land races, and other indigenous crops that the community relies on to support their livelihoods and also enhance their adaptation to climate change. To date, we have set up a community seed bank that the communities share the seeds and are able to access seeds for the indigenous food crops. And this is one of the ways that enhances partnership among community members to work together and have enough planting materials during the planting season. It is also a way of preserving the agrobiodiversity that we have within the landscape. And partnerships are very important in addressing climate emergency and also food security because it is through this partnership that communities can be able to learn from each other to share resources including seeds and also share knowledge and experiences. And to date, we have a network that allows farmers to exchange knowledge through meetings, through walking workshops, through even exchange learning workshops. And this has enabled 
the farmers from the Michigander community to learn a lot from experiences of other farmers globally. We support the farmers to travel and attend international events including workshops and share their local experiences with farmers and also learn from other farmers. And through this, the farmers bring back home some experience that is replicated within the landscape and this has had transformative change in terms of the local food system. A good example is a trip of the Michigenda farmers to the potato park in Cusco, Peru. The farmers went and interacted with other farmers from other countries like China, Peru, India and upon coming back we were able to move forward with our plan to establish a biocultural heritage territory and we believe the territory is crucial in supporting the local livelihoods and also preserving biodiversity. Thank you. Oh, I feel full of hope when I hear of the exciting things that are going on across the world. It's amazing things going on that both Eve and Chimuku have shared and it shows the power of partnership and working together both locally and globally. I also love the fact that we're looking at food systems in this really holistic and integrated way. And when I was speaking to Mike, he was passionately advocating the systems approach. The challenge is to do the right thing with every piece of land that we've got, because we, you know, we haven't got much right across the UK. And it's about finding the right sustainable balance between productivity because somehow we need to eat and the world needs to eat and biodiversity because we're hemorrhaging our biodiversity at the moment and that's got to change and dealing with climate change because about a quarter of the world's emissions are coming out of our land and yet there's an opportunity to sequester carbon instead and while we deal with all of those things we need to provide livelihoods for the people who work the land and make sure that the diets are healthy so it's an incredibly joined up challenge it needs really high quality integrated thinking and if we get it right it's a community's opportunity it's a health opportunity it's probably even uh, a tourism opportunity because there are opportunities to make landscapes more attractive what's not to like about it and it's a huge opportunity for looking after our planet but it takes really intelligent joined up thinking so I'm hoping we all agree that around the world we need to take joined up action on food to tackle climate change and the other crises we face. Pablo from Nourish Scotland is now going to dive a little deeper into the food systems approach and how this can help us achieve the Paris targets and sustainable development goals. A food system is the entire range of actors and activities which relate to our food. So this means in terms of activities, the production of food, its aggregation, its processing, its distribution, its consumption, and finally, disposal of waste at the end of this process and throughout it. When we talk about food, we're talking about three key sectors that are producing it. We're talking about agriculture, fisheries, and forestry. Now, these actors and these activities that we're talking about are embedded in a broader context, a broader natural, economic, and societal environment. And not only are they embedded within it, but they are interlinked and interdependent with it. 
So that is our vision of a food system. What then is a food system approach? Well, it's pretty simple. A food system approach is an approach to governance that tries to understand and address the food system as this interrelated, interdependent whole, including how it affects and is affected by its environmental, social, and economic context. It's important to clarify that this doesn't mean an approach to food systems has to be macro or large scale. Smaller scale actions still align with a food systems approach as long as they have the perspective of interlinking and being holistic. For instance, a community center in Glasgow might work on providing healthy, affordable, sustainable, and dignified access to food. Now, it might only be affecting a relatively small portion of the food system, the people involved, the people who are producing the food, people who are processing it, etc. But it's still being sustainable. It's still hopefully relying on local and ethical produce. So a food system approach isn't limited to broad governance or large-scale programs, though it is critical that these take it into account. It also aligns with our individual behavior, our weekly shops, for instance. Looking at food systems as a whole leads us to consider how we affect it, and it guides our actions with the knowledge that we are affecting different parts of it one way or another. And so this brings us to the second part of food systems, which is the values which underpin it. What do we want our actions to cause? Nourish sees the main challenges in the Scottish food system as hunger, malnutrition, diet-related disease, exploitation in the work that occurs within the food system, loss of biodiversity, and most topically, climate change. As such, we see the need to address these challenges as a foundation for our values. However, of course, there are a lot of challenges. So, of course, trade-offs occur. Prioritizing health on an individual level might mean importing food from further away for a more diverse diet. Affordability may lead to less sustainable choices. These are hypotheticals, of course, but they illustrate the issues that we have to deal with. A lot of Nourish's work is defined as working to reduce these trade-offs. We believe that we should all have access to sustainable, healthy, and culturally appropriate food, that these should be affordable and accessible. So that's why we talk a lot about the right to food. And that's why we affirm that this extends beyond mere survival. So with COP26 coming to town in November, what does a food systems approach mean for the climate and for the Paris Agreement goals? Well, the food system is a pretty important contributor to climate change. It's significantly important, in fact. It's responsible for about a third of global greenhouse gas emissions, 34%, the majority of which come from the agricultural sector. So there's a lot there to address in terms of mitigation, especially as these emissions are still rising. Yet, the agricultural sector is, at the same time, also one of the most at-risk sectors, vulnerable to changes in weather, climate, and the ecosystems upon which it relies. So it's important when looking at the food system through a climate lens to remember that we need to address the need for climate change mitigation and adaptation. This is especially the case when you consider some less developed countries who are more reliant on food production for their economies, especially forestry and agriculture, who have contributed exceedingly little to climate change and yet are some of the most vulnerable to its effects. Perhaps the most persuasive and obvious examples of these are the LDCs, the least developed countries, and small island states who are the most vulnerable and yet have some of the least resources to deal with these vulnerabilities. So in order to tackle these issues, we have to reduce the emissions from our food system. The good news is the food system has a lot of potential for such reductions. So one statistic that really blew my mind when I first found out about it, and still does, 
is that 25 to 30% of global food production goes to waste or is lost. Now that's enormous. That's responsible for 10% of global greenhouse gases. Not 10% of greenhouse gases stemming from the food system, 10% of total global greenhouse gases. That's the good news. The bad news is food systems receive much less attention from policymakers for a variety of reasons, but including at the COP conferences. So whilst emissions from energy are on trend to decrease, at least in the future, emissions from food systems are not. Now that really needs to be addressed at COP because the reality is we're too close to 1.5 degrees Celsius to not be addressing our emissions everywhere where we can, and let alone in a sector that's responsible for a third of them. And yet, despite the importance of this, a food systems approach extends beyond just the issue of climate emissions. The Sustainable Development Goals call for a major transformation in agriculture and food systems in order to end hunger, achieve food security, and improve nutrition by 2030. It also aims to address poverty and inequality, improve the quality of work, and make our urban spaces sustainable by the same date. Now, we don't know if that's going to be possible by 2030, but we do know that these issues are interrelated. And we do know that addressing our food systems emissions can go hand in hand with addressing other challenges that exist within it. So a food systems approach is really important at the international level to address the climate crisis and the global challenges targeted by the Sustainable Development Goals. Not only do food-related emissions need to be taken seriously, they need to be considered as an integrated whole. Traditionally, under the UN framework, they're not. Food-related emissions are lumped together under the category of agriculture, forestry, and other land use. Other emitting parts of the food system, so those that occur in transport, in processing, in waste, are separated into different sections, energy maybe, or buildings. What this means, though, is that the contribution of our food system to the climate crisis isn't examined holistically, and that limits our ability to address food emissions and the other challenges that we're talking about as an integrated whole. However, in the meantime, local authorities of all sizes have been raising the bar on action to address these issues in the food systems that they relate to and exist within. So they've done this in partnership with food producers, sellers, and other actors across their food systems. The Glasgow Declaration on Food and Climate is a testament to this work. It's a further commitment by these actors and a call on national governments to follow through and improve their nationally determined contributions to the Paris Agreement goals. In the run-up to COP26, there's going to be need to put pressure on our governments to enact meaningful change, to show them that the political will is there. I hope that a food systems approach will be one tool to understanding the challenges that we have and how we can address them. I'm really delighted that the food systems agenda is going to be a hot topic at COP26 and that the Glasgow Food and Climate Declaration is bringing the commitment of food systems transformation to the discussions as an integrated solution to the climate emergency. So, this is what is happening at an international level. But what is happening politically at a local level here in the Highlands? We need joined up action across the board from local to global. So to shed some local insight, we are now joined by Keith Masson, who is the Climate Change and Energy Team Manager for the Highland Council. 
So it's fair to say that the awareness of food and its relationship with the changing climate has been growing, pardon the pun, at political level for quite some time now. And I think from my perspective, at least, the COVID-19 pandemic has brought into fairly sharp focus for our politicians the impact that events completely out with their control can have on their communities. And it's exposed a soft underbelly to our you know, collective resilience, given that so many things that we've been used to having as and when we like, are cut off due to supply chain issues around the world. So to that end, the interest in local community growing schemes and the appetite at political level to see those being developed has been really refreshing uh, on multiple levels. We all know that locally produced in-season produce has any number of different health benefits as well as positive climate change and biodiversity impacts. And clearly, the more that we can grow and produce locally, the more resilient we become to future shocks. So back in June 2021, a motion was tabled at a meeting of the Highland Council proposing that our elected members agree that the council should sign the Glasgow Food and Climate Declaration. And just by, by way of brief background, the Glasgow Food and Climate Declaration pledges to accelerate the development of integrated food policies because they're recognised as a key tool in the fight against climate change. What it also does is commit local authorities to reducing greenhouse gas emissions from urban and regional food systems in accordance with the Paris Agreement and the Sustainable Development Goals. And it also calls on national governments and international institutions to act in a positive way. So to cut a very long story short, the motion was tabled. There were absolutely no dissenting voices from councillors, which it's fair to say is a fairly rare thing in our chamber. And what's come out of that is an enormously positive step for the council in signing the declaration. And alongside the recent appointment of a dedicated community food growing coordinator, particularly when we continue to face fairly unprecedented budget pressures, I think the council's taken a really proactive and positive step in the right direction. Key takeaway is that the council is taking this agenda seriously, but now has a lot of work to do in order to meet the declaration commitments. It's all good and well signing the declaration, but the real proof of in the pudding is, is the action that's taken at the back end of that. So just in terms of taking a systems approach to food policy, in my view, that's fundamental if we're to have any hope of meeting both national and international net zero climate change targets. Why do I say that? If we assume that conservatively food systems account for around 25% of our global carbon footprint, if we don't tackle this in a joined up way, the only way to reach net zero will be to sequester an equivalent volume of emissions, assuming that other sectors such as transport and energy completely decarbonize by 2050. It's just not practical to take a business as usual approach to food systems if we're taking the climate crisis seriously. And although my interest in food systems is predominantly focused on the emissions profiles of the sectors which are involved, there are so many other opportunities to improve health and biodiversity outcomes, as well as generating community wealth and prosperity, as well as a circular economy by improving their collective sustainability. So if we assume that food systems encompass all the interrelated actors and processes involved in the production, the processing, the distribution, the consumption and the disposal of food, it becomes quite clear quite quickly, I think, that this is quite a complicated picture, as well as a realisation that all of those actors and those processes are bound up with climate change in any number of different ways. And at the same time, climate change itself poses a threat to the good and robust functioning of food systems. We're already seeing 
almost on a daily basis, the impact of rising temperatures, extreme and unpredictable weather patterns and disruption to water cycles, which are causing reductions in the yields of staple crops in some regions of the world. And that's going to continue and only going to get worse. So it's fair to say that the global food system is an important driver of climate change, but it also has the potential to contribute positively to climate change mitigation and adaptation. For example, that could be through the adoption of food production practices with low or no greenhouse gas emissions or through reduced food waste and loss. And transitioning towards diets with lower environmental impacts will also contribute to mitigation and adaptation efforts while improving public health at the same time. And that's why the Council signing of the Glasgow Declaration is such a positive step in the right direction. It gives us, as officers, the impetus to properly examine our policy sphere of influence, to identify gaps in good practice and to work with organisations like the Highland Good Food Partnership to better align our policies and our strategies with the model of a sustainable food system. Now, it'd be foolish for the Council to think that it can do all this on its own. I think what the Highland Good Food conversation and the conference earlier this year has highlighted is that there's such a big desire and a willingness across multiple sectors, multiple communities, businesses and individuals across Highlands to make this change a reality. And the council is just a small cog and a massive wheel. But we do now have that political commitment to change. And whilst it is early days, if we do get this right, it'll be to the benefit of not just our regional climate change ambition, but to all sectors involved in the Highland food system. To me, it feels like things are coming together. It isn't even a year since we launched the Highland Good Food Conversation, and the changes in this time already feel monumental. Priorities and attitudes of key players are shifting. Support is coming from all directions. The time really is ripe for transformation. So as we've heard today, the food systems movement is gaining momentum internationally and locally. So what can we all do as individuals? Mike is now going to share some of his top tips. The basic story that most of the emissions around food take place on the farm for most foods is still absolutely the case. And those emissions come from all sorts of places. A little bit comes from farm machinery, but much more importantly are things like cows and sheep ruminating. Uh, the deforestation that lies behind particularly animal farming systems, either land that's deforested to put cattle on or to grow the animal feed that the cows and sheep then eat. And some of it comes from fertilisers and manure. So it comes from all sorts of sources, but mainly, it, absolutely, it's on the farm. And the broad perspective of the carbon footprint of our food hasn't changed much, except for the fact that our diets are just starting now in the last probably the last couple of years are starting seriously to change. And it's becoming mainstream to understand that it's healthier to eat less meat and dairy and it's much better for the environment to eat less meat and dairy. And also, as people start to change their habits, their preferences are starting to change. And I think there's starting to be real momentum behind that shift now. And um, that's good news because over the next decade, there needs to be, and I think there will be a lot of shift in the proportion of meat and dairy in our diet. In terms of what individuals can do, we absolutely all have buying choices. And when you go to the supermarket and you choose to buy the vegetarian option or the nut roast option or whatever it might be instead of the meat option, then you are encouraging that supermarket 
to increase its range of those kinds of products. And if you even shift your supermarket towards one that does a better job of catering for a low meat and dairy diet and making it really delicious, then you're really incentivizing the supermarkets to respond to that. And the same is true when you go out for a meal. And if you, if, you, know, if you go to a pub or a restaurant for a meal, you should expect a really good choice of vegetarian and vegan options. And you should expect them to be as delicious at least as the meat options. And if that's not the case, then go and eat somewhere else because that's the way the world is moving. And I'm working now with, you know, with several restaurant chains and, you know, who get this. They absolutely get this, that this shift is happening. We're at a crucial moment in history. We must change how we farm, what we eat and how much we waste. And at the same time, provide good food for everyone and good jobs in food. We at the Highland Good Food Partnership are driven by this and we plan to work closely with communities, farms, crofters and food businesses along with public bodies to do food better. We all have power to influence change. What are you going to do? We're going to finish this episode with a final thought from Mike. So here we are with a climate and ecological emergency on our hands. And it's obviously a big global challenge. So the question for us all as individuals is, is there honestly anything that we can do? Because we're all just one eight billionth of the problem. And the answer to that is absolutely yes. And part of that is about the changes we can make as consumers. And every time we go to the shops or choose a meal or go out for a meal, that's an opportunity to push for a more sustainable food system. And whilst we're doing that, possibly even more importantly, again, is for us all to be asking the question, how else can I influence things? You know, maybe I can influence things in the workplace. I can definitely influence things when I vote. You know, make sure that you don't vote for anybody who you don't know is firmly behind this agenda. And even beyond the voting, I think we have an emergency on our hands. Questions about is it time to take to the streets and if so, how? You know, those are now serious questions to ask because we have to have the change. We can do this if we work together. That's my takeaway message. I'd like to thank you all for joining us today and I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I have. And I'd also like to thank all of our guests for sharing their insights and inspiring stories. Like never before, we need a global effort and I'm actually feeling really hopeful and I can't wait for COP26. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Pebble Trust and Transition Black Isle. Without their support, this podcast wouldn't be possible. And I'd also like to thank Rachel Butterworth, who does all the hard work behind the scenes. The Highland Good Food podcast is now going to have a short break, but please do keep in touch. And for all updates, you can join the movement at highlandgoodfood.scot. And you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. So bye for just now.